Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for January, February and March 2014. Titled Discipleship, it's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 13 for March 22-28, to The Cost of Discipleship. Sabbath afternoon, March 22. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our trust in you is that you are the one who knows where we are going. You are the one who created us. You are the one who provided salvation. And as we come to this week's lesson, we just ask that you will be with us, that we will more fully understand what it takes to be one of your disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Let's read that again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Throughout history, Nameless millions willingly sacrificed their lives for Christ. They were imprisoned, tortured, even executed. Millions have foregone employment, suffered ridicule, endured expulsion from family, and persevered through religious persecution rather than forsake Christ. Only God knows the full extent of the suffering that His faithful ones have endured. Of course, Paul forewarned in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Peter said in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Despite the promises of so-called prosperity preachers, luxurious automobiles and financial gain are not automatic embellishments afforded to believers. In the end, we can be sure that whatever the cost of discipleship is, considering the ultimate reward, that cost is cheap enough. Sunday, March 23, Calculating Cost, First Priority Question. Read Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 53, chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, and Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. In what way are we to understand these strong words? What is Jesus telling us here? Well, first of all, Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I come to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And 
Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And Matthew 10.37 He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Modern television newscasters would have concocted a prominent scandal from these words. Today... Celebrated religious leader Jesus of Nazareth advocated familial hatred during his afternoon address. Analysts are comparing these current pronouncements with previously released statements that promoted loving relationships with neighbours and enemies. Informed commentators wonder if this indicates recent policy shifts. Other unconfirmed quotations suggest selling everything and turning the proceeds over to the Jesus movement. Stay tuned for further developments. A closer study of the Bible and the way in which the word hate is used helps to clarify what Jesus meant. Deuteronomy 21.15 contains Mosaic legislation regarding men with multiple wives. The King James Version, following the natural sense, translates thus, One beloved and another hated concerning those wives. Moses' point is that if the husband favours one wife above another... He cannot deprive those less favoured. The New Revised Standard Version and Modern Language Bible change the terminology rendering beloved with loved and hated with disliked. The Tanaka, the Jewish Bible, and the New American Standard Bible, Protestant, settle on loved and unloved. Clearly, the intended understanding was relative affection. Hatred, in this context, may indicate loving less. Matthew 10.37, the parallel passage, certainly lends credibility to this suggestion. Jesus' point is simple, yet full of deep implications. Whenever family receives precedence and Christ becomes secondary, Jesus relinquishes lordship. Serving multiple masters is impossible. Christ certainly supported strong family connections. Such connections, however, receive strength from unshakable foundations. That foundation means loving God unreservedly, first and foremost. God disallows every barrier, interruption or distraction. Discipleship exacts the supreme price, undivided loyalty to Christ. And so to finish the day, how do we on a daily practical level put Christ before everyone including family? What does it mean to do just that? And what could be some of the consequences? Monday, March 24, Bearing Our Cross Luke 14.24 reads, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Discipleship means accepting Christ as Saviour and Lord. Following Jesus means that you are ready to undergo the same sufferings that Christ did. Thus, we must be honest in the way in which we present our message. 
certainly the glorious truths of righteousness by faith, Christ's forgiveness, Jesus' imminent return, heaven's incomparable wonders, and God's unmerited grace should be taught. But should believers desire to proclaim God's complete message, they cannot overlook cross-bearing. Sadly, some believers erroneously think that preaching any message whereby human beings are called into action is legalistic. Divine grace has accomplished all, they proudly explain. And the human race does nothing except receive it. Jesus, however, disagrees. Question. Read Matthew sixteen twenty one to twenty five, Luke twenty one twelve to nineteen, John fifteen seventeen to twenty, and John sixteen verses one and two. What should we take away from these texts about the cost of following Jesus? First of all, Matthew sixteen verse twenty one. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offence to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Luke 21 verses 12 to 19. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience possess your souls." And John 15, verses 17 to 20. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they would also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And John 16, verses 1 and 2. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Before baptism, every candidate should understand that Christ himself has assigned him or her a cross, without which they absolutely cannot become his disciple. Does this dampen the joy of conversion? Would unrealistically promising them carefree lives somehow increase this joy? Conversion releases believers from the burdens of sin, not from the responsibilities of discipleship. 
by taking the name of Christ and by publicly revealing that choice through baptism, every believer must be aware that discipleship comes with a cost. What, though, does this world offer that makes what Christ offers not worth it? Nothing. So to finish today, when was the last time that you took up your cross? What was the experience like? What did you learn from it that could help someone else struggling with a similar challenge? Tuesday, March 25, Disciplined Response Question. Analyze the following passages, Luke 14, 31-33, 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Hebrews 12, 1-4, and 2 Peter 1, verses 5-11. What are these texts telling us about the life of a disciple? How have you experienced the reality of what the Bible tells us here? Well, first of all, Luke chapter 14, verses 31 to 33. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown." Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin." And Second Peter chapter one verses five to eleven. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things you will never stumble. 
for so in an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship involves discipline. Every impulse, every imagination, every ambition, and every desire must be submitted to Christ. Every possession, physical or invisible, every talent and ability, and everything of value must be under Christ's command. What we don't surrender to him can, and inevitably will, become an idol with the potential to lead us astray. Christ indeed offers us the power to overcome our character defects. Every appetite, emotion and intellectual inclination can be under the guidance of his Spirit. Notice the athletic example that Paul used in some of the texts for today. No athlete conspires to run slower, jump lower or throw shorter. No believer should look backward either, especially when that which is at stake in the race is something that's eternal, as opposed to whatever prize an earthly runner might win as a result of all his or her diligent effort and training. As we read in the Acts of the Apostles, page 311, the runners put aside every indulgence that would tend to weaken the physical powers, and by severe and continuous discipline trained their muscles to strength and endurance, that when the day of the contest should arrive, they might put the heaviest tax upon their powers. How much more important that the Christian, whose eternal interests are at stake, bring appetite and passion under subjection to reason and the will of God. Never must he allow his attention to be diverted by amusements, luxuries or ease. All his habits and passions must be brought under the strictest discipline. Reason, enlightened by the teachings of God's Word and guided by His Spirit, must hold the reins of control. Wednesday, March 26, Comparing Costs Corporations explore the viability of proposed projects through cost-benefit analysis. Do specific proposals contain the ingredients necessary for bringing successful returns on investments? Does the benefit outweigh the outlay? Another frequently used measurement is durability. Does the proposal offer sustainable returns? The rewards of discipleship may likewise be measured through comparison with the costs. Those costs may include emotional suffering, social rejection, physical torture, financial deprivation, imprisonment, and death itself. Everyone who undertakes discipleship should first consider carefully the investments involved. Question. What do the following texts tell us about some of the costs of discipleship? Matthew eighteen eight and nine, Luke six thirty five, and Philippians two verse three. Beginning in Matthew eighteen verses eight and nine, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, Pluck it out and cast it from you. 
it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. And Luke chapter 6 verse 35 But love your enemies, do good and lend hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. And another question. What do the following texts say about the benefits? Well, first of all, Luke chapter 18, verses 28 to 30. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. And John chapter 14 verses 1 to 3, Let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign for ever and ever. There is no question that the cost of following Jesus can be high, perhaps the costliest thing that anyone can do. Indeed, one should question the reality of his or her faith and commitment if following Christ hasn't cost a lot, maybe even everything. But one thing is sure, whatever we gain in this life, whatever we accomplish, whatever we make for ourselves, it is only temporary. It is something that will not last. It will vanish and vanish forever. In contrast, what we gain through Christ, eternal life in a new heaven and new earth, is by far worth more than anything and everything that this world could ever offer us. So to finish today, think through all the pleasures, all the joys and good things of this world here and now. What are they in comparison to eternity with Christ? How can we learn to always keep this contrast before us? Why is it important that we do so? Thursday, March 27, A Better Resurrection
Question. Read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32, through to chapter 12, verse 4. What do these verses say to you personally about the cost and the reward of discipleship? Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. What a powerful concept is revealed here, especially in the verse that says in, in Hebrews 11.35, women received their dead raised to life again, others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. In a sense, being both a disciple and disciple-maker can be boiled down to one thing, a better resurrection. We follow Christ because we have the promise, the hope of redemption, of a new life in a new world, one without sin, suffering and death. At the same time, because we have been given this hope, this promise, made certain by the life, death, resurrection and high priestly ministry of Jesus, we seek to point others to the same hope, the same promise. In the end, before the great controversy is over, we will either face the first or the second resurrection. We know for sure which is the better one. What else matters other than not only being in that resurrection, but doing whatever we can to lead others to it as well? The harvest has ripened. Millions await the call to discipleship. We have been blessed not only with the gospel, but the gospel in the context of the present truth, the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, God's last warning message to the world. What are we going to do with these truths that we love so much? Thus, we ask, where are the reapers? Where are those willing to come alongside Christ and share the risks? Will you accept God's invitation to not only be a disciple, but to make disciples, regardless of the cost to yourself? 
And to finish today, think through the implications of the first resurrection and of the second resurrection. In light of these options, what else matters other than being in the better one and helping others to get there too? Friday, March 28. From the book The Great Controversy, pages 672 and 673, we read, Fire comes down from God out of heaven. The earth is broken up. The weapons concealed in its depths are drawn forth. Devouring flames burst from every yawning chasm. The very rocks are on fire. The day has come that shall burn as an oven. The elements melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, are burned up. Malachi 4, 1-2, and 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The earth's surface seems one molten mass, a vast seething lake of fire. It is the time of the judgment and perdition of ungodly men. As in Isaiah 34 verse 8, the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of the recompenses for the controversy of Zion. The wicked receive their recompense in the earth, Proverbs 11.31. They shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, Malachi 4.1. Some are destroyed as in a moment, while others suffer many days. All are punished according to their deeds. And that brings us to our discussion question, and there's just one today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose Christian faith led to his death, wrote a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship, published in 1963. Below are some of the quotes from the book. How do these fit in with what we have studied this week? Pages 62 and 63. The old life is left behind and completely surrendered. The disciple is dragged out of his relative security into a life of absolute insecurity. That is, in truth, into the absolute security and safety of the fellowship of Jesus. And pages 66 and 67. If we would follow Jesus, we must take certain definite steps— The first step, which follows the call, cuts the disciple off from his previous existence. And page 99. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Inside Story Our mission story this week is not a straight mission story, it's an allegory. It's titled, The Carpenter's Tools, an Allegory. Some tools lived together in a carpenter's shop. They were having some problems getting along, and some complained that others were not doing their share of work. They met to discuss their issues. The hammer spoke first, for he served as the chairman— "'Brother Drill,' he began, "'you and your family are so noisy "'and you seem to spin in circles but go nowhere.' "'The Drill quickly spoke up, "'It's true that I go around in circles "'and my work makes noise, "'but at least I'm sharp.' 
pencil is small and often so dull that he makes a bad impression. He needs to be sharpened a bit if he expects to be of any use around here. Pencil felt defensive and spoke up. Yes, he said, I am a little blunt at times, but it's because I work hard at my job. At least I'm not rough like sandpaper here. It seems all he does is rub things the wrong way. That remark made Sandpaper really angry. Hey, what about Ruler here? He measures others by his standards, as though he is the only one right around here. Ruler surveyed the group and said, I'll go if I have to, but then so must the screwdriver. He's so annoying, always tightening here and loosening there. The screwdriver angrily spat out, Fine with me, I'll go, but Plain must go too. His work is superficial. There's no depth to it, he said. To this, Plain levelled his terse reply. Saw's cuts hurt. She divides instead of unifies. Saw rose up to answer these accusations when suddenly a noise at the door stopped all conversation. The carpenter walked in, ready to begin the day's work. He put on his tool belt and stepped to the workbench. He picked up the pencil and ruler. Carefully he measured and marked the wood before him. He sawed along the marks and then planed the cut edges of the wood to smooth the rough edges. He hammered joints into place and drilled holes for screws to make the piece sturdy. Then he sandpapered the wood to a silky smoothness. All day long he worked, using first one tool and then another. At the end of the day he gave a hefty blow and blew the dust from the finished product. And then he said, "'Beautiful. I couldn't have done it without my tools.' Each one had an important role to play. No one tool could have done all the jobs. They're all important. When we work together, going, praying and giving, we are the master's tools to finish his work. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful. <laughs>